Welcome everybody again now to part three of our series that we're calling Foundation. We're kind of ending up the series before we have Palm Sunday and Easter. Easter's in two weeks, everybody. Come on, Resurrection Sunday is just two weeks away. Going to be an awesome, awesome morning. Looking forward to that. But we're finishing up the series that we're in today called Foundation. And so go ahead and grab out something to take some notes and your Bibles, everybody. You know that we believe in taking notes here at Victory. I want you to have something to reference later on in your spiritual journey. If you like fill-in-the-blank versions, you want to write down what I want you to write down, you can pull up the Victory Church app. Got a fill-in-the-blank version there. Uh, follow along. All the verses, everything we're going to use today, you can follow along uh, in the app. We've been talking about some of the foundations of following Christ, some of the foundations of Christianity uh, and following Jesus. And so week one, we talked about repentance and then faith and truth last week. And so we've been looking at these. And it is a journey, everybody. I've been kind of laying them out in steps as we move. But I want you to see this, that the Christian walk is a journey that I believe God always intended for us to continue to grow. Continue to move in our faith. Continue to grow in our knowledge. Continue to grow in our obedience. Continue to grow in our Christian walk. In fact, the verse we read in week one said that you should all now be teachers of others. After you've been there a while, there should be steps you take. There should be something you're working towards and that no matter how long you've been in the faith, we're continuing to grow. No matter how accomplished you feel, no matter how uh, incredible you think you are, we're still all supposed to grow in our faith. And I told you in week one that it's my job to make sure that we don't get stuck because it is easy to get stuck. It is easy to become stagnant. And so we started in week one with repentance from sin and faith in God. And then last week, we looked at the question that Pilate asked in the New Testament, what is truth? And today, in week three, I want to look at this idea of redemption. We talked about repentance, we've talked about truth, and now we're going to talk a little bit about redemption. Colossians 1 says, he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son, that's Jesus, that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's in Christ that we have redemption. He is the one who redeems us. Titus says Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. That he gave of himself, that he came to redeem us, to save us. And all throughout the Bible, you see this theme that you have been redeemed, that you have been bought with a price, that you have been purchased, that Jesus gave himself to redeem us. And one of the things I've always loved as a pastor is seeing in the New Testament, seeing these incredible promises of God come to pass, But then in the Old Testament, seeing the shadow of that promise, seeing how God worked in the life of the Israelites, the people of God in the Old Testament, how God began to work in their lives and how he has a shadow of the things that he now does in our lives. And so I want to look at one of those parallels today as we close the series out, because you see how God takes the nation of Israel. He takes them out of captivity in Egypt. He frees them from their bondage. He redeems them. We'll see in just a moment. And he brings them to the promised land. He brings them to the place where he promised to take them. And you see the journey that they're on in the same way that we're in a process, that we're on a journey in our Christian walk. And you see kind of the steps that they take and what God does for them. And so I want to draw some parallels today and see what we can learn about the nature of God when he redeems. When God redeems, what that means for us, what it looks like for the Christian when you have been redeemed. And so it's a process. And I want to remind you that victory exists for this process. The reason that we're here is to help you move from where you are to where God wants you to be. It's a process. It's a journey that we take. And so we're going to go to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is Moses coming to the children of Israel while they're in bondage. And he's coming to them and he's telling them the promise that God has for them. 
So I want you to see this, and you'll see some terminology that looks the same, because like I said, it's a shadow of what God is going to do in the life of Christians and what he's doing already. Watch this. I will free you from being slaves. This is Moses telling them what God says. I will free you from being slaves to them, to the Egyptians, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And can we go back to verse 7 and before this one? But it says, I'll free you and I'll redeem you with outstretched arm of judgment. And then verse 7. He goes on and he says, I'll take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So there's a journey God has for them. In the same way, there's a process for us. There's a journey. And so they're wrestling through this idea. God's going to save them. He's going to redeem them. He's going to deliver them. And then he's going to bring them to the promised land. He's going to make them his people. And so I want you to see as we take this journey today with the Israelites, and we always enjoy journeys with the Israelites because they remind us of ourselves quite often, everybody. But as we take this journey with them, I want you to see how the process plays out in your own life because all of us are somewhere on that spectrum. All of us are somewhere on the journey in our spiritual walk. For some of you, it's you need to be repent. You need to have this repentance situation where you have salvation. For some of you, you need to grow. For some of you, you need to be redeemed. For some of you, you need to be set free from some things. There's a process on the journey that all of us are taking. So a couple of questions I want you to ask yourself as we take this journey together in the next 20, 25 minutes. First question is, am I moving? Am I moving? Because it is easy to get stuck. It is easy in this process to get stagnant, to stay stuck where you are. Begin to ask yourself, am I actually moving and growing? Especially the longer you've been saved, the longer you've been in Christianity, the easier it is to get stuck. The easier it is to just kind of hang up your boots and say, well, I've made it to where I need to make it to. And I just hope everybody makes it where I am. It's easy to get stagnant. The second question then would be, if we're supposed to be growing, what is my next step? What is the next thing? Because everybody has one. From the newest to the oldest Christian, everybody has a next step, somewhere to grow in God. You're not supposed to stay where you are. We cannot stay stagnant. So what is my next step? And for some of you, you are at the very beginning, and your next step is to place your faith in Christ. That's where you find yourself on the journey, to repent and to decide that I can't do it on my own. I have to put my trust in Jesus to save me. For some of you, it's to be baptized. You've never been water baptized. You've never made that declaration. That's your next step. For some of you, it's to get in a small group, to get connected with relationships. For some of you, it's to begin to lead. For some of you, it's to begin to reach out and to pour into others. For some of you, your next step. All of us have something we need to do. For some, it's to begin to love my neighbor. Come on, somebody. I, I can love my friends, but now I've got to love my neighbor. For some of you, it's harder than others, depending on your neighbor. But you begin to say, what is my next step? Maybe I'm supposed to model Christ-like attributes for my home. I'm supposed to be the leader in my home. Maybe it's I'm supposed to model Christ in my workplace. But what, what is my next step in this journey? So I want you to ask those two questions. Am I moving and what is my next step? All kinds of things that can be the next step for you. And it's not my job to tell you what your next step is. All right, everybody? I don't know if I've given that impression. That is not my job to tell you what that is. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And if you are faithful, if you pray, Lord, show me what my next step is. He is faithful to show you because he's a whole lot better at his job than I am at mine. And he is faithful to do that. And my job is just convince you that you do need to take one. So I'm supposed to convince you, you have to take another step. You have to keep growing. And then the Holy Spirit will reveal to you what that step is. Now, I'm excited about our study today because we're going to hang out on this thought about what does it mean to be redeemed? Because he says to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, I will redeem you. 
And it says in the New Testament that Christ came to redeem us, that we are redeemed, we are bought with a prize. What does it mean to be redeemed? What is the reason for that redemption? So I want to start with the meaning. And so that is the word redeem. And it means to buy back or to restore. To buy back or to restore. Now, as New Testament Christians, we know Jesus bought us back. With the blood at the cross of Calvary, Jesus died, gave his life to purchase us back, to save us, redeem us from the law of sin and death. That the blood he shed at Calvary redeems us from our sins. So we understand that, that he redeemed us, he bought us back, but he did it for a purpose, and that is to restore us to our original design. That there is a purpose for us, and so Jesus shed his blood to redeem us, and he did it to restore us with a purpose. To buy us back and to buy us. And you say, well, why have I been redeemed? We're going to look at that in just a moment. Because I want you to, what we're going to talk about today is I want you to know God has a design, an original purpose for you. That God has a design for your life. When Moses delivered this promise to the children of Israel, when he came to them and said that the Lord is telling you, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to free you. What he's saying to them is you're not supposed to be slaves in Egypt. This is not what your purpose is. That you're not supposed to be hanging out here. I think you might think that that's what it is, but that's not what it is. He says, God's going to redeem you. What he's saying is, this isn't where you're supposed to be right now. This isn't the purpose that you have. In fact, your purpose is to go to the promised land and then to demonstrate to the world around the goodness and the greatness and the power of God. That's what the Hebrews were called to do. You're supposed to be the people of God. You're not supposed to be making bricks in Egypt. That's not what you were meant to do. And so when he gives them this promise that God is going to redeem you, he's saying God has a plan. God has a promised land for you. That is a plan for your life. And so I want to look at this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. The Bible says this, for we are God's handiwork. I love this verse. I will work this verse in any chance that I get, everybody, all right? I love this verse because that word handiwork there. It means craftsmanship. It means masterpiece. It's the idea that God was intentional in forming your life. And I believe this with every part of me. God was intentional in forming you. That God has giftings and talents and abilities that he put into your life. That he has a purpose for you. That God is intentional in the idea that he loves you. He's intentional about your gifts and created in Christ Jesus. Watch this. To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I hope you see this word advanced there. That's the idea that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Like you weren't born and God looked down and was like, another human. I don't know what we're going to do with it. I don't know what. I just, it might get saved and then we might have to come up with some kind of purpose. So let's roll the dice and see. That's not what happened at all. No, God has a purpose for your life. That God created you with purpose and intentionality. That he has things prepared for you to do. Not just the person on your left, not just the person on your right. I think sometimes we read these verses with some super Christian in mind. Oh, thank God, God has things for them to do. No, God has something for you to do. He has purpose for your life. That my Bible says before you were formed in your mother's womb, God saw you. God knew you. God had plans for you. That you have a purpose that he breathed life into you. In fact, in Acts, the Bible says that he knows when and where he's going to place you. That he understands the times and the places that you've been made for. That God has a purpose for your life. And if you've taken notes, you can jot it down this way. You were made for a purpose on purpose. Come on, somebody. There's a purpose for your life. On purpose for a purpose that you were created. And some of you have been attacked with the lie that you were an accident. Some of you, sometime in your life, you've been attacked with the lie that you weren't made on purpose. 
And maybe your parents said, well, we didn't want a boy or a girl. Or they said, well, we, we didn't even want children anymore. And then you came along. And so they just said, well, you were just an accident. And some of you have been fed that lie that you were just an accident. And while to your parents or to the world around you, it appears that you were an accident to them. There are no accidents in the kingdom of God. That you were created on purpose and for a purpose. That God has things for you to do. That God loves you, that he created you with intentionality. That's what this verse is. You are a masterpiece created for God to use you for his kingdom. That he has purpose for your life. This is why, by the way, and this is just a little aside today. This is why when people say, well, why can't the church just let abortion go? Why can't the church just let this just slide? It's been so long and just kind of give it up. Go after other things. Try to figure out. No, this is not just something we let slide because we believe every life has a purpose, that God knows every life, that God has a key. God has a, its intentionality in the way that he forms. Before the mother's womb, he knew you. Before he had plans for you. It says, well, why can't, why can't the church just let refugees go? Why, why do we care about the poor? Why do we? No, every life is precious. Every life is precious. God has intentionality. God has intentionality. He's created each one with a purpose in this world. And as soon as we get that, and we begin to love others with the love of Christ, that he loves them and so we love them, that God sees people with purpose, that God has designed an intentionality, that he has gifted you. He's equipped you to do something for the kingdom, that he has things prepared for you to do. And it's incredible. You have to get a shift of the mind to understand this. That God has prepared unique things for you to do in this life. And the reason why he made you, that he has a purpose for your life, something to call you to do. It's important for us to understand because this is the essence of discipleship. This is the essence of figuring out what you are called. Discipleship is the process of figuring out why you were made and living out in that purpose. Beginning to do what you were made to do. Beginning to discover what you were made. God has a plan for your life. And not just, he, he has a plan that you would get saved Not just so that you wouldn't go to hell. That's important, everybody. Not just for that, though, but that you would accomplish things in this life. That he has incredible things and purposes for you to accomplish. That he has a job for you to do. So jot it down if you're taking notes. Discipleship is not just learning about God, but living for God. And this is going to be another one of those things you got to get your mind around if you're actually going to live out your purpose. That it's not just learning about God. And that's important because there are a lot of Christians who want to spend all of their time just dissecting Scripture. And while I think studying Scripture and I think knowing Scripture is incredibly important, we oftentimes look at the Bible through the wrong lens. Because, see, we look at it with this idea, and what we're accustomed to is this idea of Greek learning. And there's nothing wrong with that, but what we need to come around to the fact of is Hebrew learning. Because Greek learning is nothing wrong with that. It's actually, it's what we're doing right now. And Jesus used it in his ministry where he put the people up on the mountainside. And he preached to them from a fishing boat or he began to share things and, and study the scripture. He began to share that way. There's nothing wrong with that. But the way he made the biggest impact was in Hebrew learning. And Hebrew learning, instead of having one person listen to another, what Hebrew learning says is come alongside of me and let's go do something together. And that way you can learn. When Jesus calls his disciples and he said, I'm going to breathe new life into you. I'm going to give you new purpose. You're going to be fishers of men, not fishers of fish. Come on, somebody. You're going to have a new purpose and a new life. He didn't say, now that I've called you to be disciples, everybody take out your notes and your pens and write down the three P's of good discipleship. All right, I'm going to give you the three different. And while I love three P's, right, because I have preacher's disease and I love, I love an incredible way to remember things. While I love that. That's not the way that Jesus made the biggest impact on the disciples. Jesus called them 
And he said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to be with me and we're going to go do some things. We're going to heal the sick and we're going to cast out demons and we're going to preach the kingdom and we're going to spread the gospel and we're going to live out this life. You're going to come with me as we learn and I'm going to send you out to make a difference. So discipleship is not just learning about God. It's doing what you've been made to do. It's living out your purpose for God. It's important for us to learn, but discipleship isn't coming to a class. Discipleship is living out your calling. It's putting into practice your purpose that God has called you to do. And we have too many people, and I'll say this, we have too many people in the church that are too hung up on head knowledge and too hung up on learning all of the time and dissecting all of the time and trying to learn more and more and fill their heads more and more when the world is dying and going to hell while they learn more about religion. And it has to stop. We have to become disciples that actually learn and then do. James says you can't just be a hearer of the word. You have to be a doer as well. That those things go hand in hand. We need to understand that our message and our mission is to reach and to save the lost. That that's why we are disciples. It's what we've been called to do. That when Jesus left and he floated on up into heaven, he didn't look at the disciples and say, now go around and preach really good sermons. And hang out with a bunch of Christians and let that be what you do until I come back. That's not what he said. He said, now go out, right, and make disciples, have relationship, begin to do what I just did, and change the world. He called them to live out their purpose. That he's calling us to live out our purpose. I'm preaching way better than y'all are responding today. All right, everybody? So I'm just going to, that's good. That's good preaching, everyone. And so when you learn that discipleship, no, you're too late, everybody. (laughs) When you learn that discipleship is actually living out your purpose, you need to know that the destination, where you're headed, what you're growing into is better than anything that you could imagine. So you have to keep that in mind as well. The promised land, like for the children of Israel, is better than anything you could dream up. And we know that because we know the nation of Israel's story. We get to see the end of the story when God redeems. We get to see how it ends up. And so, in fact, Joshua 24, Joshua's recounting the blessings. He's standing before the Israelites, telling about what happened when they did make it to the promised land. Verse 11, he says, Then you crossed the Jordan, and you came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also all of the Ites, all right? The Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the Nicotnites, right? <laughs> The dynamites, the crystallites, come on, help us, Lord Jesus, all right. Pizza bites, come on. We need to get some of those because I didn't eat breakfast and that sounds delicious. All right, everybody. <laughs> you say, Pastor, you're eating, you're eating your feelings and they are delicious. Can I tell you, everybody? But I gave them into your hands, he says. I'm going to need a microwave food small group. Come on. Anybody feel led to lead the microwave food small group? Just me. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. And watch this. Watch what he says to him. I love this part. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So he's talking to them. He's recounting Jericho, the first place you encountered when you came in the promised land. All the ites, all the things that you and he's recounting. And he's saying, and I sent the hornet ahead of you, God said, which drove them out. And you did not do it. You did not do it on your own. And watch this. Watch what the redemption looks like. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. You want to know what redemption looks like? It's something that you didn't do on your own. You didn't forgive your own sins. You didn't bring yourself into the promises God had. He says, you did not do it with your sword and your bow. And I wanted you to know that you did not do it 
on your own power because I'm the one that's redeemed you. That's what God is saying. I am the one that's redeemed. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Here is God's blessing when he redeems. Here's what it looks like when God does the redeeming because the promised land looks a whole lot better than you could ever come up with on your own. Here's what it looks like. It looks like businesses that you didn't have to grow. It looks like relationships and opportunities that you didn't have to, that you could not possibly have gotten under your own strength and your own charisma. It looks like things that you could never have done for the kingdom on your own. That's what the redemption of God looks like. When you talk about your purpose, why did God redeem us? He redeemed us because he has a purpose for us. And when he redeems, it's a whole lot better than we could come up with on our own strength. It's a whole lot better. It's better. But oftentimes we think, man, it sounds like a lot of work to live my purpose. It sounds like you're just trying to hustle me onto a team and I'm going to have to do all these. I'm going to have to do all this stuff. And it just, I I don't want to go into all that work. But looks what it looks like. God says, I want to remind you, you didn't do it. When you get to the end, you talk to any Christian who's been blessed by God. Any Christian who's found themselves with relationships and opportunities and businesses and blessings that they're able to use for the kingdom. You talk to anyone who does, they will tell you, I did not do it. I have no idea how it ha- It's God alone that can make that happen because me alone could not do it. You want to live out your purpose. We're looking at the Israelites now after the promised land. And when they've been given the promise and God's saying, you didn't do it on your own. I'm the one who drove them out. But this is what it looks like. Redemption, I promise you, everybody, it's better. It's better than anything we come up with on our own. God says, you didn't do it. God never asks you to do something he doesn't empower you to do. God never calls you to do something that he doesn't equip you to do, everybody. He's not going to call you out there and then leave you stranded. No, God empowers you. Watch this. Fast forward to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians. Here's what it is to find your redemptive calling. He says, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. Watch this in verse 7. Watch this. He says, a spiritual gift is given, and everybody say this with me, is given to each of us. Come on, one more time to get a little weak. It was given to each of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us. That means every single person. If you've been saved by Christ, if you're a new creation, if you found yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you have a gifting and a calling. That you've been gifted and you've been called. That every one of us, the Holy Spirit has given a gift to he says every single person has spiritual gift. Everybody is called to ministry. I don't care where you find yourself on this earth. You are called to ministry. You have been given a gift. Now, the tragedy of that is they've done studies inside of the church, and they say somewhere between 75 to 80% of the church doesn't know what that gift is. They don't know what that spiritual gift is. They may believe that they have one, but they have no idea what it is or what they've been called to do. Can you imagine that? 80% of the body of Christ not knowing what its function is. Not knowing what it's supposed to do. You imagine the body of Christ like that. How much more effective could we be if every part of the body knew what its function was? How much more effective could the bride of Christ be? And I can tell you, when you understand what your gift is, it makes room for everybody else's gift. Because when you begin to understand, okay, this is what I am good at. I know I'm frustrated when I do this, this, and that. But this is what I'm called to do. Then you don't become intimidated by someone else being great in their gifts. Because you know that's what they were called to do. You understand that? You begin to say, well, I I know they're great at that, but I know what I'm good at. And so I'm going to be good at what I'm good at. You'll be great at what you're great at. And together we can be a picture of Jesus to the world around us. That we've been called, we've been gifted, that every one of us has a ministry to do. That God made you on purpose and for a purpose. Now, it's interesting that during this promise to Israel, this redemption part is the only part of the promise that comes with an explanation. 
So God, God explains to them, God describes how he's going to do it. He describes how he's going to redeem you. And when he talks to the children, watch this, and he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Remember, the shadow in the Old Testament and what has become now the reality and the truth in the new. That he says, I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I love this imagery of the outstretched arm of God. You see it all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. You see the outstretched arm of God. That he says, I'm going to reach out my arm. Then in Isaiah, it says that he looked and he saw there was none strong enough to save. And so God said, I'm going to do it on my, on my own. I'll do it all by myself. I'm going to reach out my arm and save. That there was none perfect who could save us. And so you read now in the New Testament that one was born 2,000 years ago. That God reached out his arm. He said, there's none, none that can save. And he wondered at that. And then he said, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to stretch out my arm. And we have Emmanuel, God, with us. That he stretched out his arm to save. The outstretched arm of God. But see, so often people get stuck in this lie. That all we deserve is the judgment and meanness. And that God is somehow mad at us. Religion works overtime to get you to believe that all God is is mad at you. That all God wants to do is get even with you. That all God wants to do is punish you. And it tries to paint this picture in your mind of a God who just wants to judge you and wants nothing to do with you. But no, the outstretched arm of God is the outstretched arm to save. That the outstretched arm of God is the outstretched arm of mercy. That it's the arm of grace that God reached down and lifted us up, Psalm says, out of deep waters. That God wants to rescue us. That he said, Jesus his son, and if you don't believe that God is compassionate and gracious and merciful, that it will affect the way that you serve him. It will change the way that you serve him. Because what you believe about God determines how you behave in Christianity. We learned about that in week two. That what you believe, whether it's wrong or right, will dictate how you behave. And if all you have is a warped picture of who God is, instead of the outstretched arm of God, the mercies of God, then it will affect the way that you approach him or don't approach him. Fast forward to the New Testament. There's a parable that Jesus tells called the parable of the talents. And Jesus tells this story where he says a landowner leaves his land and goes away. And he leaves his servants, three of them, with talents. And now talents are a unit of money. He would have been leaving some, one with five talents, one with two, and one with one, a unit of money. But actually, in the 13th century, this word talents is where, in this story, is where we get the word talent today. It's talking about ability or giftedness or whatever you want to call that. It's where we get the word talent. It's from this story. So a little bit of etymology for you there today, everybody. So to one servant, he gives five talents. To one, he gives two. And to one, he gives one. And then he leaves. Now, when he returns, he asks what they did with the talents that they had received. And so the guy with five doubles his talents. The guy with two doubles his. And so the landowner looks at them and he rewards both of them for what they did. Now, I want you to understand here, God's never going to judge you based on what somebody else does with the talents that they are given. Because both of them received the reward. The guy who had five and the guy who had two. Both of them, because they were faithful with what they had been given. The guy with five doubled his. The guy with two doubled his. So we got ten and four now. That's just free math for you, everybody. But because of this, God never judges you based on the giftings he gave somebody else. Now, God's going to ask, what did you do with what I gave you? Because everybody has a gifting. We learned that already. Everybody has a purpose. We learned that already. And so God is going to ask you, what did you do with the giftings and the talents and the purpose I gave you? I don't care what Jim Bob did with his giftings and with his talents. I want to know what you did with what I gave you. 
That that's what you're responsible with. Were you faithful with what God gave you? But the guy with one talent didn't do anything at all. The guy with one talent, he went and buried his talent in the sand and never looked at it again until the master came back. Why? Why did he do nothing with his talent? It's because of the perspective he had of the master. If you read the story, the reason he hid his talent is because he had the wrong perspective of the master. His perspective was he saw God as hard to please and as judgmental, and so he buried his talent. And I'm willing to say today that a lot of people in Christianity are sitting on the sidelines, not using the talents God has given them, not living out in their purpose, because all they see of God is that he's too hard to please. That would be impossible to do. And so they're sitting on the sideline not wanting to get in because they know that they think in their minds that God could never accept me. That God would never accept what I've done. And that there's no way I could live out in any way that could please him. Remember, God is only asking you to be faithful with what he's already given you. And so instead of getting in the game, there's so many who say, well, I've got a wrong perspective of God. Of the, I've got a wrong perspective of what he expects of me. And so I'm just going to bury my talent and not even use it. Instead of having the idea that, no, the outstretched arm of God is there to save you. It's there to have mercy upon you. It's there to lift you up out of deep waters. That the outstretched arm of God is his mercies and his grace towards you. It's outstretched arm. And we have to have the right perspective about God. That his mercies are new every morning. That great is his faithfulness. That no matter how many times I mess up, and there are a lot of times that I mess up. Many times that if I'm faithful to repent and I'm faithful to seek him, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The outstretched arm of God to save. And then it says, and I will redeem you with mighty acts of judgment. And you think, well, that's just contradictory. You got the outstretched arm and the mighty acts of judgment, but they're not for you, everybody. Mighty act of judgment is for the enemy, the plagues. And this is for the enemy that he's reaching out the arm. He says, my mighty acts of judgment are reserved for them. We too, we talked about that we have an enemy of our soul. That all he wants to do is to kill and destroy everything in your life. That's all he wants to do. Well, guess what happened? That the devil wants to destroy you. And so he's not just content with trying to keep you from going to heaven. Because that's what his number one thing is. He doesn't want you to go to heaven. He doesn't want you to live out your purpose. He doesn't want you to have. But if he can't keep that from happening, he'll be content with you not taking anybody else there. If he can't keep you from being saved, he'll be content with keeping you isolated and not being able to use your gift, not reaching out to anybody around you, just kind of huddling and saying, we're going to wait till Jesus comes. He'll be content with you just not taking anybody else with you. And so what happens is we have a lot of Christians who are living very comfortable lives. Because they're really not impacting eternity all that much. They may be saved and they may be headed to heaven, but there's no one coming with them. And so the problem is we have people, their lives are not happening. And what happens, what you start to see happen when you discover your purpose, when you start to live out your giftings, you start to serve, you start to give, you start to love others, you start to share the gospel. You start to see yourself become effective. What happens in those times, what you start to see, all of a sudden it sounds tongue in cheek, but all of a sudden the air conditioner breaks The car gets a flat tire. The dog dies. You lose your job, right? Your best friend walks out on you. All these things begin to happen in your life. And you begin to cry out, my God in heaven, why have you forsaken me? Why am I being judged? Is this like, why is my life falling apart? That's not what's happening at all. That's not what's happening in your life. Let me tell you what's happening. It's for the first time you're becoming effective. You're impacting eternity. You're beginning to make a difference for the eternal. And now hell knows your name and he's trying to get you to stop. You're trying to impact for the first time. It's be, and you see this attack. You ask anyone who's begin to see the promises of God come to pass, begin to step into your ministry. I promise you an attack is on the way. 
That's why Paul in the New Testament tried to prepare us as best he could for spiritual warfare. That we have an enemy. That we can't just let it in the back of our mind that we're just going to make an impact for eternity and it's going to be smooth sailing and everything's going to be incredible. No, when you begin to make an impact, you wait. The attack is coming. We have an enemy. That the attack is coming on our life trying to get us to stop. But the beautiful part of this is that he's a defeated foe. Jesus said on the cross of Calvary, it is finished. The devil is under our authority that we have that because of the cross, because of the sacrifice, because he took the keys of hell and the grave. Now demons have to flee when we use his name. Now demons have to flee in the name of Jesus. We have that authority. That's the beautiful part of this. That there is an attack, but mighty acts of judgment, the outstretched arm of our God, that God comes in like a flood to raise up a standard against him. And no matter what it is the enemy tries to do, that his attacks, he's already defeated. That we have that authority in our life, that he'll rescue us. God will rescue us from whatever hell the devil tries to bring into your life. No matter what it is, that he will rescue us with the outstretched arm, the mighty acts of judgment. Which brings us back to the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 14, everybody. Two things I want you to jot down as we close out this series. That we learn about the nature of God, about redemptive calling. Exodus 14, verse 1, he said, Now they've been set free for about three weeks now. They're about three weeks past being coming out of the land of Egypt. They've been free for three weeks from the plagues, from slavery, from all of that. And now watch what God has for them. The Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites, watch this, I think we skipped this verse. Order the Israelites to turn back and to camp, by hard word, between Migdal and the sea. Watch this. He said, order the Israelites to turn back and camp between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore across from Zac Ephron. Come on, somebody. Just trying to see if you're awake today. (laughs) Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They are trapped in the wilderness. God is telling Moses this. This is what's about to happen. A lot of us skip over this. We just tell the story after. We don't talk about when God tells Moses, this is what's going to happen. Pharaoh will think they're confused. And once again, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. I have planned this, says the Lord, for you to be shark bait. This is my plan, says the Lord. I have, he's telling Moses this, in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. I want to look at the, the first verse of this and the last verse of this, where he says, tell the Israelites to turn back. Tell the Israelites to turn back. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. If you're going to live a life that lives out your redemptive calling, if you're going to see God move in a powerful way, number one, jot it down. You're going to have to learn how to trust. If you're going to actually live out your redemptive calling, you're going to have a purpose and you're going to make it known that you're going to have impact on eternity. Live out this purpose. You're going to have to learn how to trust. Because sometimes God will give instructions that don't make all that much sense to you. Sometimes God will give instructions that don't make, they're on their way to the promised land. I'm headed to the promised land and God says, I want you to turn around. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, God. Like I, you freed me. I'm three weeks freed. I'm heading to the promised land. And God says, turn back, turn back and camp by this. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know if you're like me, but I don't have a lot of faith or trust in all of the new digital map options that have come into our world in the last few years. That is not somewhere I have a lot of faith and trust. Like we like to road trip or head up to like North Alabama and Tennessee and drive up there. And so we'll be driving up the 59, just heading north. And Google will pop up and say, I have a new route for you. I can save you 30 seconds if you go 57 miles out of your way. (laughs) And now some of you that have drank the Kool-Aid, 
All right, you say, thank you, Google. That's amazing. I accept. Just hit accept. Of course I accept. Give me that. Not in my car, all right, everybody. Google comes up and says, I have a new route for you. You could go 100 miles out of your way. And I'm like, we got to confirm this with like five other map options, all right? I want to see Waze and I want to see Apple Maps. And I'm like, to my wife, Alyssa, I'm like, you pull up everything we have because I want to know, is it a three-car pileup or a four-car pileup? Because that decides what I, I pull it. And she gets stressed, right? And we begin to argue. Intense fellowship together. <laughs> I'm not yelling. I'm just very passionate about what I'm talking about. And so we begin. And so she finally just ignores me. But I got to see all these different things because I do not trust what you are telling me to do. Right. Because I don't want to get stuck in some old town country road. Right. With no stoplights and no on ramp to the interstate head and turn around backwards and stuck for three hours. I want to know like where I'm headed. Like I want to know why you're asking. I, I don't trust what you are telling me to do. Google. And some of y'all are like that with the Lord. Some of you, God comes to you and he tells you, hey, I want you to get rid of that thing. He speaks to you in a service and say, hey, I want you to do this in your life. Or, hey, I'm, I'm convicting you about this area. Hey, I want you to walk away from that company. Hey, I want you not to do that thing. I want you to take a step back from that group. Or I want you not to do this thing. And some of y'all are listening to that. That God is telling you, I want you, to, I want you not to do that. Or I want you to trim in this area. Or I want you to, to figure out and shape up here. And you're like, I'm going to have to confirm that with 57 spiritual counselors. And I'm going to have to like, like, they're going to have to be seven fleeces. And you've got to write in the sky with a rainbow. And like, God, I'm, you have to send me angels three or four times. Like three or four angels three or four times for me even to, like God himself will have to speak to me with the light. We begin to do that with the word of the Lord. Because sometimes God will come to us and say something that doesn't make sense to us. And we won't trust. You want to begin to live out your purpose. You want to begin to make a difference. You've got to learn how to trust. Because here's what I've learned. What we see as a setback, God sees as a setup. What we see as a setback in our lives, something that doesn't make sense to us, something that we could possibly think, Lord, what are you doing in that situation? God sees as a setup to what he has for you. God says, yeah, yeah, I think I can do something with this. We see this in the life of Joseph. I never get tired of talking about Joseph. Joseph was betrayed in every way you could possibly imagine. He's thrown in a pit by his family. He's sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, betrayed in Potiphar's house, thrown into the prison. And watch Joseph at the end of Genesis. Watch what he says. God says, look at all this in your life, Joseph. I think we can do something with this. Because watch what Joseph says about God. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He's saying all this stuff that happened in my life, you thought it was a setback, but God was looking at all of this every step of the way and he had intention for it for good. He said to accomplish what is now being done. So it wasn't that great in the midst of it. It wasn't that great in the next step of it. It wasn't that great in step three, four, five, six. Joseph said, I'm at the end of all this and you intended it to harm me, to destroy me, to take it out. But God intended it to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The saving, because sometimes God takes you backwards to take you forwards. There are some areas of your life you think that God is taking you back. You think that God is taking something away, but God has a plan for you. He has a purpose, and we have to learn how to trust. And what I've learned in my life is just like Joseph said in this, that even if God didn't ordain it, he can redeem it. That even if God didn't ordain that thing in your life, he will redeem it, that he has a purpose. My Bible says that he works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That God, even if he didn't ordain that thing, that he will redeem it. 
That we are redeemed for a purpose. You were made on purpose for a purpose. That God has incredible things for your life. So even when the devil thinks that he's winning, God is saying, I'm going to use that to take them to my purpose I have for them. Even when the devil thinks he's getting away with something, even when he thinks he's won at something, God says, no, I can redeem it all. That I can use whatever it is that happened, that I didn't ordain that sickness, I didn't ordain that tragedy, I didn't ordain that thing that happened to you, but I can sure redeem it. That God is saying, I can still use you for the purpose I've called you for, that you're never too far gone from that purpose, that God can bring you back. That God can use you. And they're called according to his purpose. God is saying, I didn't create that thing. I didn't create that sickness. I didn't create that relationship that was broken. I didn't create those things, but I can redeem it. That I can redeem. So even when the devil thinks that he's got you trapped, even when the devil thinks that he's got you confused, even when he thinks that he can attack and he thinks you're not, you have no defenses. God said, no, I can redeem. That we serve a God who redeems. So Pharaoh looks at this nation of Israel turning back He sees them out there in the wilderness turning back and he says, they must be confused. They must not know. And I'm a little confused about why we let them go in the first place. Pharaoh's like, they built all our buildings. They cleaned our toilets. They made all this stuff. Like, why did we let our slaves go? Pharaoh's like, why did we do this in the first place? We got to go get them back. We're going to go and attack. So Pharaoh attacks. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approaches, the people of Israel looked up and they panicked when they saw the Egyptians. Like, we've done what God said. We trusted and we turned back and we camped. And now we see the Egyptians coming. God, why? And so they panicked when they saw the Egyptians. They cried out to the Lord. Watch this. And they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here just to die? Like we trusted and we did what you told us to do. Why did you bring us to die? Weren't there graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? And watch what Moses tells the people. Don't be afraid. Moses is out in front of all these people. Three weeks, he's been leading them. And so he cried out. He said, don't be afraid. Just stand still. Watch the Lord rescue you. The Egyptians will see and they will never be seen again. He says, stand still. The Lord himself will fight. Just stay calm, everybody. Stay calm. Stand still. But I want you to notice this, what Moses actually does. Because we can tell from the next verse what Moses does. He tells the people, everything is okay. Everything is good. Stay calm. Just don't, don't move. Don't do anything. The Lord is going to fight for you. The Lord is going to do this thing. Don't move a muscle, everybody. It's all going to be okay. And then watch what Moses does. He goes to the Lord. Watch this next verse. He goes to the Lord and cries out. If you've ever been a boss, you can, you can relate to Moses. Because he tells all the people, everything is fine. Don't move. Everything's okay. And then he goes and cries out to God. Like, Lord, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? And watch this, what God says to Moses. Because Moses just told the people, don't move. Don't do anything. Be calm. Let the Lord do it all. Don't, don't move. Don't do anything, everybody. Just trust. He's got this first part of this message. Just trust. But then the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying? That's a word for somebody from God today. All right, everybody. Why, why are you crying? Those of you who are parents have said this 42 million times this week alone. Why why are you crying? And watch what he tells Moses. This is a word for He says, tell the people to get moving. He tells to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Why are you telling the people, don't move, be calm, don't do anything? I told you what was going to happen already. He says, tell the people, get moving. He says, why are you crying to me? And maybe for some of you, some of you, this is a word from God today. Why are you crying? 
Why are you crying? Because the second part of this, we have to learn how to trust. But then the second part is we have to start to move. You got to start to move. Once we learn to trust, we have to start to move. Now, I'm not making light of what you've walked through in life because all of us have walked through pain and adversity. I'm not making fun of that. You might be wrestling today with God asking why. Asking why. I don't understand why that person walked out of my life. I don't understand why that relationship fell apart. I don't understand why I had to walk through that abuse. I don't understand why I had to go through that thing. I don't understand the why I'm dealing with this sickness. I don't understand why I'm walking through pain in my life. And I'm here to tell you today, my heart breaks with you as well. And I don't know why. There are some things that we will not understand until we get to heaven. But I can tell you that if you sit there and you cry and you moan in the place where you are and you rehash the past and you dwell in the past and you let the past consume you, you will never make it to the promised land. That if you sit there and you cry in that, if you sit there and feel sorry for yourself and excuses about life, that is where you will die. You cannot stay there. If you sit there and you do, because God's best is not found in self-pity. And maybe it's time we stop crying. God says, why are you crying? Moses, people, why are you crying? It's time to get moving. Because my Bible says in Isaiah 43 is forget the past. Don't dwell on the past. Don't rehash the past. Don't let the past dictate everything that you're going to do. No, God says, I'm, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Behold, I'm doing something incredible. And behold, I still have a purpose for you. I still have something for you. Quit reliving the painful moments because God is doing a new thing and your future is never found in your past. What God is going to do in your life is never found in your past. God says, follow me. Follow me. He says, you have to trust, but then you have to move. You have to trust and then you have to move. And you might be thinking though, you might be thinking the same thing that the nation of Israel has is thinking because he had a plan for them. He has something for them past this event. Something for them, incredible, the promised land, past just this moment. But they can't see past the moment. They can't lift their eyes up based on where they are at that moment. They can't lift their eyes up based on what's happened to them. And God is saying, I have something new for you. But you might be saying the same thing the children of Israel were saying. I don't know what you want me to do then. Like, like this is great and I really feel encouraged that I need to start to move. But I don't know what you want me. I don't know where you want me to go. You want me to pick up my stuff and move? Great, that's fantastic. But where do you want me to go? Because remember where they are in this story. In front of them is the army of the Egyptians. Incredible army, chariots and horses and soldiers coming to attack them. On the other side of them is a sea. Not a river, not a creek, not the Komet, everybody. A sea is on the other side of them. And so they're stuck between. And so they're asking this question, where could I possibly go? It's great, God, I'm trusting and you want me to pick up my stuff and move. You, you want me to do all this stuff, but where do you want me to go? There's no way out. And that may be true for you today. You may feel like there's no way out. You may feel like the children of Israel, that I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. I, I don't know where you expect me to go. I like the message, Pastor, but I don't know what you expect me to do. You feel trapped by your circumstances, by your situation. You feel paralyzed where you're at. Feel like there's nowhere to even take a step. You say, we talk about next steps all the time. You say, there's no way, I don't know where you even expect me to go. But in our story, watch what happens after the people pick up their stuff. After they pick, they trust again. They trust in the word of the Lord. After they pick up their stuff, watch what happens in Exodus. It says, Moses stretches out his hand over the waters and God moves and the waters part. And the Bible says, there are two walls of water. 
across the Red Sea. That the, the waters part and the Israelites cross over on dry ground. You know what kind of a miracle that is just by itself? That they go over on dry ground. Every step they take is on dry ground. You come out here to the property during a hard rain. We call it Lake Victory out there, all right, everybody? It fills so quickly out here. Even after the waters recede, you go out there after a rain, a couple of days, the water's gone. You take a step and you will lose a shoe, everybody. You will, like, it's amazing. You're like, where did my boot go? Like, it just, just disappears. They didn't even have to deal with that. Dry ground. They crossed over on dry ground. What a miracle that is. Again, we're not talking a sea, not a river. We're not talking a river or a creek. We're talking about a sea. Israel didn't even have to put up with that. They crossed over. And you know why? Because they trusted and they started to move. God can open the sea, but you got to pick up your stuff, everybody. God can open the sea. God can do the supernatural. You're not called to do the supernatural. Let God handle what he does best. You're called to pick up your stuff, to trust and to obey and to move. That's what we're called to do. James says faith isn't just being a hearer of the word. It's a doer of the word. Faith isn't just here is the plan. Here's what I want you to do. And let me just part the seas and let me take care of the Egyptians. And then I'll carry you across the river or the sea. I'll carry you across on dry ground on a puffy white cloud. And you won't ever have to do anything ever again. That's not what faith is. Faith is hearing and doing. Faith is put into practice the trust that you have in God. But you let God take care of the supernatural. That's what he does best. You let God take care of those things because God will open doors that no one can shut and God will open doors that nobody could even open. God will open doors and God will do the supernatural and God is waiting because he has a purpose for you. That God is calling you out. He's calling you to walk and he opens doors and he'll make a way where there is no way. When you think I have nowhere to step, when you think God's not calling you to part the sea. It wasn't even Moses' power that parted the sea. Moses had a calling from God to stretch out his hand over it. God does the supernatural. But God is calling you to pick up your stuff. What he's told you to do, he's expecting you to do. We got to trust and we got to move. And I promise you, though, when you see this purpose of God, when you see what he's calling you to do, he's got incredible things for you. Incredible intentionality that you are a masterpiece, that God is calling you to do incredible things to impact eternity. But it will not happen if you sit there and you cry. It will not happen if you don't trust God enough to take the step he's calling you to take. God has incredible things. You cannot stay where you are. The enemy's bearing down on your life. The enemy will attack. It's a given. You will walk through troubles. You will have these things of betrayal. You will have these things of relationships. You will have these things of brokenness. You will have these times that the enemy tries to come in. But God is saying you cannot stay there. You cannot stay there. But you got to pick up your stuff and move. You got to have faith to trust. And when you do, when you do, when God moves the waters part, when your life is filled with these God stories that nobody can make up, when you begin to see him move in all of these things, this is what it begins to look like. The redemptive calling it begins to look like cities that you didn't build and crops that you didn't plant and all these blessings that you could not possibly have done on your own. That's what it looks like to live redeemed because that's how good our God is. Every head bowed and every eye closed today. As we close out this series, I just want to pray that God would help you live out your redemptive calling. That you would begin to see that he still has purpose for you. 
that he still has calling for you, that he still has an incredible thing for you to accomplish in the kingdom, that he's gifted you by the power of the Holy Spirit, that God has called you, that I don't care if anybody else told you you were an accident. I don't care if anybody else tried to tell you the lie that you couldn't be used. God is saying that he wants you, he loves you, and he has a purpose for you. So I want to pray today that we begin to live out that redemptive calling. That we would trust him and we would take a step of faith. That we would learn to trust his voice and we would learn to take the steps he's called us to take. Before we pray for that, I'm wondering, though, how many of you have never seen God as the God of the outstretched arm? In all your life, you've never seen God as the God of the outstretched arm of mercy and of love. And all you've ever seen God as is mean or mad or wanting to get even with you, waiting just to judge you. I want you to know today that he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And when you have the wrong perspective of him, all you get is religion and not relationship. That's not what Jesus died for. And when you have the wrong perspective of who God is, never live out the purpose he has for you. And maybe today is the day that you say, I'm ready to open my heart to him. I'm ready to accept who God really is. I want to live out the purpose. I want to be saved. I want to repent of what I've done and I want to live in the life God has called me to. If that's you today, I would be honored to help you take that step of faith. But it begins with repentance and salvation. The journey we're on with Christ, it begins with repentance and salvation. It begins with giving your life to Jesus. And so if that's you, I want to pray that prayer with you. I'm not going to make you stand. I'm not going to make you come to the front. I'm not looking to embarrass you. I want to connect you with Jesus. And so today, if you say, I need to take that step, if you're in the room or you're watching online, wherever you are, you say, that's me. I want to do that. I want to take that step. I want to live out that purpose. I want to give my life to God. I would invite you, just pray with me today. It's a prayer of surrender. And all the church, we're going to pray it with you. Nobody prays alone. But if you made that decision, be bold. Let today be your day. Say these words with me. Come on, church, let's pray this. Say, dear Jesus, I repent for all of my sins, for all my mistakes. I surrender to you. I believe you died on the cross. And I believe you rose again. And I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Now, Lord, we thank you for this amazing church. God, today I pray that you would help every one of us have the faith to take a step, whatever it looks like, whatever you're calling us to do, God, that we would have faith in your word. God, that we would have faith to trust you in what you say to us and we would take a step. God, we pray and we ask that you would do the supernatural. For those of us who feel stuck, those of us who feel like there's nowhere for us to go, but we want to trust you. We ask you to do the supernatural. And God, give us the courage and the strength to pick up our stuff and walk. Give us the courage and the strength. Lord, I ask this week, give us opportunity to live out in the gifting and the calling that you've given us. Show us areas of this world that we are called to reach. Show us our purpose. Lord, we want to be a part of the body of Christ. We want to be the part that knows what it's called to do. 
that isn't hindered or intimidated by anybody else's gifts. We know what our calling is, that you've called us to be faithful with what you have given us. So this week, I pray a blessing. Lord, over every person here, every person watching online, every person listening, I just pray a blessing, God, that we begin to walk in the giftings you've given us. We begin to recognize opportunities that you've sent our way. We love you and we praise you. We'll give you all the glory for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's church said amen and amen. Come on, church, can we celebrate with those who made that decision today? Real quickly before you go, just give me 30 seconds. If you made that decision, I'm so excited for you. Heaven rejoices when you make that decision that you are now a part of the body of Christ and we cannot be happy. We are so incredibly excited for you. And I would love to talk over what your next steps are in the kingdom, what God may be drawing you towards, what God may be calling you for. If you made that decision, I'm going to be at the front of the stage. I would love to talk that over with you after the service. Or if you feel more comfortable or you're watching online, you can text the word SAVED to 6599. Numbers up on the screen. If you text the word save, we filmed a short video. I promise it's not a marketing ploy. Not looking to save your number, anything like that. We just send you a quick video to show you your next steps in Christ. We'd love to connect with you in either way. We'd love to have that for you. For the rest of you guys, you're dismissed today. Be blessed this week. We'll see you next Sunday.